Good morning. Our pastor and his wife are, are away today, so on these uh, frequent or infrequent uh, occasions, uh, they let me out of my cage. And so uh, I, I'm excited uh, that I can be here today with you. And uh, we're, we're slowly filling up our seats, and that's another answered prayer. We ask the Lord to bring people to us, and here you are. And we're thankful that you've come today. We look forward to a day of a, a morning of worship together, uh, not only through the written word, but through the, the music, through singing, and uh, singing praise to our Lord's name. Um, we uh, don't make a big habit of making too many announcements, but we do have one special one that uh, Andrea Stovall uh, needs to bring to you. If oh, there you are. Come on up, Andrea. How do you miss those red pants? Yeah, I don't know. You need, need, you need to clean your glasses. I know. You would have noticed if I had purple or yellow pants on, wouldn't you? Um, good morning. Um, I just wanted to remind everybody that Awana will be starting back in just two and a half weeks. Um, there is a sign-up out there on the sign-up table. Um, if you are returning but haven't signed up, please sign up and let me know. I really like going off a list so I can make my plans. Um, if you have any questions about wanting to come work with Awana, come find me. I'll be at the check-in desk after church uh, down in the children's building. And um, in September on the 26th, I'm going to have an open house night at our Awana program for anyone in the church that, that's just curious about what we do, I, I encourage you, even if you don't want to work with Awana, come that night. I'll be having more information over the next few weeks about it. Just come and see. Um, just see what we're doing. It is an amazing program with just, um, it is our best outreach children's program that we do uh, throughout the year. And um, I just want you to come and see what we're doing. And uh, then you can just pray for us. If, you, if you're not, if you don't feel like you need to work with a wanner, it's, it's, it's not where you're called to work, you can still pray for us. Um, we see about 80 plus kids every week. And about 20, 60 of those are about kids from this church. But we, we run about 20 visitors every year. And just pray. You can pray for us uh, weekly because we are sharing the gospel. We are in, imparting God's word to these kids. They're memorizing God's word. And... If, if they're visitor kids and they have parents, we have a lot of parents, they don't come to church, but they allow their kids to come to the program. You can pray that that word does not return void and that those kids can go share uh, God's word with their parents. So um, just look for information about that for the open house night. And then if, if you need to sign up, please sign up today for me. Thanks. Thank you. In our pastor's absence this morning, uh, our speaker in just a, a little bit uh, today will be uh, Daryl Munkus. Now, a lot of you know Daryl. He's one of uh, our members here. He teaches uh, one of our adult elective Sunday school classes. But there are a lot of you that are saying, well, I don't know who he is. And so let me just uh, give you a little brief resume of Darrell. He went to Hewitt Trustful High School. He was paroled. Uh, I mean, he graduated in the, the early 90s and was given a scholarship to go to 
the University of Ole Miss. There is no University of Ole Miss. He went to Ole Miss. It's the University of Mississippi, but they call it Ole Miss. Uh, but he went to Ole Miss on a football scholarship. And I looked it up, and the years that he was there playing football, uh, they went uh, two and two against my beloved Tigers. And uh, he told me, he said, well, I was there for a fifth year. Uh, I was a red shirt. And I said, well, did you play that year? He said, well, no. I said, well, then you're not, you don't have that record. You don't have that. He said, but we won the game that year. I said, but you didn't play. So that had nothing to do with you. <laughs> but after graduating from Ole Miss, Darrell was privileged uh, to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, actually, that's where he met his beautiful wife, uh, Glenith who had come from the Philippines on a pastor scholarship. Her father's a pastor over in the Philippines. And uh, they were matriculating together, and they were in the same curriculum and all that stuff. And eventually, the Lord just uh, let them both uh, decide to propose to one another, and they did, and, and, and they were married. And uh, they both uh, graduated, and Darrell left Dallas with a MABS degree, Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, and they came back to the trustful area, and they came uh, to our fellowship, and we, they've been a part of our fellowship uh, ever since. Also, in 2018, just a few months ago, Darrell, along with Pastor Thad, uh, he graduated from Grace School of Theology, earning a uh, Master of Divinity degree. And so um, he stays busy. He's an educator, he's a teacher and coach in the public schools, of, of Alabama. Uh, he's a father. Uh, he's a teacher of the scriptures here in our church. And if he has any time left, I guess he watches old reruns of I Love Lucy. I don't know. But, but uh, he's a busy man, but uh, he loves God's word. And a little later, he'll be coming this morning and ministering to us uh, in the word of God. As we begin, stand with me and we'll have our opening prayer. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for this wonderful day that you've given to us. And thank you, Father, for these who've come. Um, many of them have spent the past week worshiping you individually and just communing with you and enjoying the blessings that come to those who are in Christ Jesus. But today we come to collectively uh, offer up our praise to you and to put ourselves under the teaching ministry of your spirit through the spoken word. And we pray, Father, that uh, at the end, we will all agree that it was good to be here today. And you have blessed us. You've helped us uh, grow spiritually. And you've reminded us of how special each one of us are as ministers of Christ Jesus to a world that is desperately in need of knowing him and the grace that was accomplished at the cross of Calvary by his son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we put ourselves under your ministry today, under your uh, spirit. May this be a time when you are glorified and you are praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all uh, read aloud together. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. 
every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I'm going to ask you guys a question. If you could just give me a yes or no answer. Is Jesus Christ worthy? Is Jesus Christ worthy of your praise? Yes. Justice is hateful. 
Good morning. It's uh, such a delight to be with you this morning. I appreciate uh, Pastor Thad uh, for giving me this opportunity and the elders. Uh, just excited to share God's Word with you this morning. You know, whenever you get a chance to pinch hit, you better make it count. Or you're not going to be pinch hitting anymore. So, that's for sure. I'm going to slide this up a little bit. So, uh, Well, with that being said, we had better... Uh, go before the Lord here 
for sure. So, <laughs> all right. Well, let's ask God to go before us this morning and uh, bless our time. So, pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we bless you so much for uh, your goodness to us. Uh, that you have not left us and abandoned us to speculate about who you are, but you have revealed yourself from eternity past to eternity future. You have manifest yourself in the person of Christ. You have transcended the bounds of time, uh, an infinite God. Oh, how we thank you. Uh, as we uh, study your word this morning, we pray that uh, you might go before us and that you would illumine more so yourself to us, that somehow, as we engage this world that we live in, that somehow you might be seen in what we do. Go before us, and it's for Christ, uh, his sake, that we ask and pray. Amen. Well, I'm wearing my Filipino barong this morning, so uh, some of you may ask, what, you know, you're 100% American. Uh, you're as American as apple pie. Why are you wearing a Filipino barong? I'm wearing Filipino pants, too. I have these tailored in the Philippines. Uh, but uh, the Bible says the two shall become one flesh. Amen? So why don't you stand up, baby? Stand up. Those, you know, a lot of you know my wife, but this, uh, you know, those of you that don't, this is my, my lovely wife, my more uh, attractive half. So, but... Uh, Anyway, well, let's look this morning. If you would, uh, turn to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look this morning at uh, verses 18 to 25. The Corinthians, they were Paul's problem children. Uh, in the Old Testament, Israel was repeatedly warned uh, about their worldliness. They mingled with the nations and learned their ways. Christians can do this as well. Paul said to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To the people of Ephesus, Paul said, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking truth and love. We're to grow in his grace. Unfortunately, Christians historically have been more concerned with fitting in, assimilating, than being orthodox. To, uh, Solomon said it like this, like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You know, as Christians, oftentimes we can give way to pressure. Churches give way. Denominations give way. And what can happen is entire cultures can get affected. Uh, the Corinthians church is a prime example of giving way as some bad guys had commandeered the pulpits. Uh, what Paul does with this book, just as a, a jeweler, many of you have taken your uh, significant other uh, in those early days, you took them to a jeweler to get that special ring. Uh, and just as a diamond lays, uh, a, a jeweler will lay a diamond on velvet to amplify the beauty. The church at Corinth is laid on velvet to amplify not beauty, but error. Uh, the, book of, uh, the books of Philippians, Colossians, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Romans, uh, they're all written to model churches. Well, 1 Corinthians is not a model church. It's the anti-church. Uh, now, I'm going to give you a meaty introduction this morning. So, uh, first, uh, Corinth was a 
great religious center. You should have a handout there. I made it easy for you. A few things to fill in on the front side, a few things to fill in on the back side. But I got most of the notes printed up for you. So. But from, Corinth was a great religious center as there were 12 temples. Temples dedicated to Apollo, the god of the sun, uh, to Poseidon, the god of the ocean. He also had the patron of seafarers, among many other gods there. However, the most popular temple was dedicated to Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love. Now, the reason for its popularity was because uh, worship at that temple required you to fellowship with her. And this was fulfilled by sacrificing to Aphrodite and then having sex with one of over a thousand temple prostitutes there in Corinth. And through this copulation at this temple, you were thought to be in fellowship with Aphrodite. Now, as you can imagine, this temple was the most popular in Corinth because nothing can aid in the growth of one's ideology like temple prostitution. Fornication flourished in Corinth. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one commentator said it like this, Old Corinth had gained such a reputation for sexual vice that Aristophanes coined the verb Corinthiazo, to act like a Corinthian, to commit fornication. Another commentator said this, he said the old city had been the most licentious city in Greece and perhaps the most licentious city in the entire empire. Uh, Archaeologists have uh, unearthed evidence of the immense wealth that was concentrated here in this uh, ancient city, evidence of feasting, evidence of drinking, music, dancers, uh, ornate temples they have unearthed, unearthed uh, the honoring of the gods there at the temples, the numerous decadent pieces of pottery that were there. Anything that was decadent, uh, Corinth had it, as it was a very prosperous city. Uh, now today, we, we do not simply honor decadence. We, we broadcast it. <laughs> uh, we publish it on social media. According to Forbes magazine, from uh, July 2009 to July 2010, about 13% of all web searches were for erotic content. Uh, today, publicists honor decadence. They no longer operate with any integrity as we become literally a decayed relativistic culture that will publish anything, clickbait, for a buck. Uh, what's up is down, and what's down is up. Uh, secondly, uh, Corinth was also uh, geographically distinct. It's located on an isthmus, uh, a term from the ancient Greek uh, that means neck. It's on a narrow strip of land or land bridge that connects two larger land masses. Let me show you here on this map here. Uh, this isthmus connected the, the Peloponnese Peninsula. Uh, the Peloponnese is right here. If you look uh, right here, this is the Peloponnese right here. And it connects with this little piece, of strip of land right there. Uh, and that's what we're talking about right here. And to avoid going around the Peloponnese right here, what you would do, let me show you the next slide here. Uh, it, it, what, to avoid going around, shippers in that day would cut through. In Paul's day, they simply made a, a road, and the shipmen would steer their ship into the dock, and the steve doors would transfer, transfer uh, their cargoes to land vehicles. 
that would cart the merchandise off in various different directions. So, so if a ship was small enough, what they would do, if you see this little piece of land here, is they would drag it. This is a four-mile strip right here. They would drag the vessels across this from one gulf to the other uh, to avoid having to go around uh, this uh, the Peloponnese. So, so they were some tough guys back in those days. Uh, the distinct geography of Corinth led to its immense commercial and philosophical uh, influence. Uh, thirdly, Corinth was a port city. It was a well-populated commercial city. Uh, there were 250,000 residents and 400,000 slaves that were there in Corinth. Uh, Murphy O'Connor says it this way, um, Corinth had more business than it could comfortably handle. The immense volume of trade was augmented by huge numbers of travelers. Profit came easily to those prepared to work, and cutthroat compensation ensured that only the committed survived. Uh, it was a place that the skillful entrepreneur could go, uh, to, could migrate to, uh, reside, and become immensely wealthy. You could keep up with the Joneses, as we like to say. You could become a self-made man in this wealthy place that had a steady stream of travelers and merchants and a whole lot of vice. Uh, fourthly, uh, Corinth was a great self-made syndrome center. Uh, one uh, commentator, Witherington, says it like this. Uh, in Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origins syndrome. Uh, Self-promotion and patronage or having a following were important elements of public life. Uh, same commentator goes on and says this, Corinth was a city uh, where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Uh, the Corinthian people thus live with an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was often more important than facts. Sound familiar? <laughs> In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition of others by others of one's accomplishments. Uh, another commentator, Thistleton, concludes this way, uh, Corinthian culture has much in common with the social constructivism competitive pragmatism and radical pluralism which characterizes so-called post-modernity as a popular mood. Self-promotion and patronage, uh, obtaining adulation or fame uh, greatly shaped the role of rhetoric and sophistry. Uh, now let me explain to you what sophistry was. Sophistry was the art of winning a debate. It, it didn't matter if you were even arguing for something incredibly immoral. But the objective was to beat your opponent in rhetoric. Uh, it was the art of winning an intellectual debate. Uh, with Sofer, uh, the goal of the sophist was to win the debate and to gain ascendancy over an opposing rhetorician through oratorical skill. Uh, Thistleton uh, can comments, he's quoting uh, Pogolov here, and he says, uh, the pragmatic criterion, excuse me, uh, the pragmatic criterion of becoming a winner in the marketplace, sometimes with a sacrifice of personal integrity, made its impact on Corinthian rhetoric. Declaration increasingly became uh, the major opportunity for oratorical displays. 
In the classroom, the competition might be over theory, but in declamations, the contrast was between rival performers. The drive for adulation we learned from Seneca the Elder often overcame the more basic goals of rhetoric. Seneca observes that too many times the aim was to win approval for yourself rather than for the case. Uh, the casualty is truth. The focus is the speaker, as is the case with 21st century chat show host or participant in the mass media. Uh, there are many parallels between the Corinth of Paul's day and our culture. We live in a pluralistic society inundated with humanism, uh, proliferated by way of the virtue of tolerance. The prize word of modern-day sophists who beckon you to honor someone else's individual pride. We are also a culture steeped in consumerism, a culture rooted in the assemblage of material possessions. Today we lead all cultures in that enterprise. And we value popularity and we seek to gain ascendancy over others through sophisticated technological tools of patronage. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it. Uh, we have many personalities that will sell their own soul for ascendancy and the root of it all is individual pride. How many of you have ever seen someone's social media page litter, littered with about 50 million selfies? Huh? Alright. Do you think you got enough pictures of yourself? Uh, how about a picture of your dog? Give me a picture of your goldfish, your gerbil, something. You know, give me a picture, a picture of anything, but don't give me another selfie. All right? All right? Well, don't get me going. So, Let's go to the next here. Another thing. Corinth was a great philosophic center. Uh, there was no central ideology of truth in ancient Greece. There were numerous thinkers who within themselves, through the apparatus of human reason, they came up with their own philosophic systems. Corinth was 50 miles from Athens, the seat of the great ancient philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. Uh, because it was a port city, it was a crossroads, not only for material goods, but also for human ideas. Due to this never-ending spread of human ideas, consequently, people would follow after certain philosophers. And these personalities would use sophistry and intellectualism and rhetoric to gain their followers. Paul says it like this. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow the real Apollos. The other, I follow the real Cephas. Another, I follow the real Jesus Christ. You know, there are those, some people that are so spiritual, they can't get under anybody's authority. All right, okay. I follow the real Jesus Christ. Well, factions emerged in the church, and the people aligned with their favorite personalities. You know, we're with this guy, we're with this guy. And they lost their sense of grace that we are all obligated to in Christ by elevating teachers falsely. What is a teacher? A Bible teacher is nothing more than what? Nothing more than a steward of the word of God. Well, in keeping with the philosophic tradition of Greece, the Corinthian church made Bible teachers philosophers that you are to follow. A popularity contest which caused tremendous division. Sound familiar? 
Do we elevate individuals? Uh, modern Western man is rooted in philosophy, and the prevailing philosophy of our day is existentialism or relativism. The premise of relativism is that there is no absolute truth. Uh, the notion of an absolute God who has spoken in the Bible and incarnated himself in his one and only begotten son is beyond the ability to perceive. It is foolishness. There's no absolute that you can reason through or observe with your senses that gives an answer for the universe and its order, morals, ethics, or the dignity of man. There's nothing. All existentialism comes to is nothing. So you don't have to find truth. What you do is you invent your own truth uh, system. It comes out of you. Uh, uh, not only do we elevate individuals today, we elevate the individual. I am God. I determine. I decide what truth is. Uh, and if there is no absolute, as you know, uh, society phrase. Uh, you, you can answer this question yourself, but are we a tattered nation today, beset by prevailing philosophies, whereby individuals and groups band together to gain ascendancy? You bet we are. All right. We live in a time of great political, social, uh, economic, religious, and philosophical tension set ablaze by the weapons of social media. Well, this is the day in which Paul preaches. Uh, one commentator said it succinctly. Uh, uh, excuse me. All this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York Los Angeles and Las Vegas of the ancient world. <laughs> Corinth was a place that felt it had no need of God. It was a lot of wealthy, immoral people with a lot of false religion and a lot of intellectualism. Everything that was antagonistic to the gospel. Uh, it doesn't sound much different from our day, does it? Uh, well, that's the very reason why in 1 Corinthians 2... Paul said this, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling to engage such a self-centered, divisive, divisive, volatile culture with the gospel was a daunting and frightening prospect. Uh, Paul actually took a vow when he went to the Corinthian church not to have his, his hair cut. He was to be separated from the world. He was to be set apart, not taken in by a... a by the worldliness, he was like a, a Nazarite giving a consecration to God. Uh, Acts 18 records the Lord's appearance to Paul saying, uh, Do not be afraid any longer, uh, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. Uh, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Uh, in fact, Corinth had an uprising, which is recorded in Acts 18. Sosthenes, the head of the synagogue at Corinth, hauled Paul in front of the Roman governor, attempting to uh, get the governor to kick Paul out for causing a disturbance. So Corinth was a very volatile place. Let me ask you, how do we engage such a culture? How do we do it? Well, just like Paul, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He gets, he gets scared. We get scared too, don't we? 
Well, Paul went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. And in the smaller cities, he would spend a few weeks or months. But in Corinth, he stays for a year and a half because the rusty wheel gets the most grease. Uh, he left Corinth. And he went to Ephesus where he spent a short time. Then he went home to Antioch. He retraced his steps on his third missionary journey, uh, going to Ephesus and stayed there for three years. So after three years in Ephesus, a short time in Antioch, a year and a half in Corinth, the Corinthian church had been in existence for some five years before this letter is even written. Uh, now when Paul is at Ephesus, he receives some uh, visitors. Look at uh, verse 11 in your Bible there, chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, some from uh, Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus after three years. He had received some bad news that uh, false teachers had gotten into the church and corrupted the church doctrine, teaching that the resurrection was an impossibility, that Christ was not physically raised from the dead, and thus we would not rise from the dead. Others began to teach that eternity was not going to be a physical thing, that we would just be a spirit form. Uh, they denied morality altogether, saying that uh, just as you have a body and a stomach for food, so you have a body for sex. So you use it. There was a guy living with his stepmother in incest, and the church would not uh, exercise discipline. Paul writes, uh, it is reported everywhere that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind which does not even exist among the Gentiles. So that someone has the wife of his father, and you are inflated with pride. And should you not rather have mourned, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst? They condone the sin, and rather than impacting the world through moral laxity, they allowed themselves to be impacted by the world. Uh, people within the church, Bernie Madoff types, were defrauding each other in business. Uh, those hurt would take the offender to court before non-Christians, and in so doing, they would slander the name of Christ. Interestingly, the spiritual gifts that the Corinthian church honored the most were tongues and prophecy. They were a sensational people. They believed that all, of all the body of Christ, they were the elite with a second blessing who had a higher relationship to God than anybody else because God talked to them. And the rest of the body of Christ need to be speaking tongues just like they did in order to be on the same spiritual level of direct access to God. Sound familiar? Uh, consequently, the Corinthians, as you can imagine, were a condescending people. Varsity, JV. Uh, Paul speaks against that. False teachers slandered Paul. Paul's not an apostle. He didn't walk with the twelve. He's not a true preacher because he's not rhetorical. He's not philosophical enough. They said Paul was a simpleton who, uh, who merely appealed to the historic act of the coming of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection from the dead according to the word of God. For the Corinthians, they found that to be utterly unappealing to their Grecian philosophic senses. So tremendous divisions arose within the church over personalities that had gotten into the church. Well, with the factions and the emphasis upon self-promotion through tongues and prophecy, the services were not structured, as you can imagine. 
Uh, everyone did according to their own mystic relationship to God. People spoke in tongues simultaneously. Paul said, if a non-believer walks in here, he is going to say that you are mad instead of saying that God is among you. Uh, regarding communion, they had lost their sense of grace, making communion service merely a modern-day golden corral. The rich got to church early for the Sunday night buffet, while the poor arrived later for the scrub, the, the crumbs, so the scraps. Christ was dishonored through this communion. Paul said, if we're just going to have division, eat at home. Uh, the Lord's table is a spiritual thing. This is my body. This is my blood. Uh, Paul writes, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. 1 Corinthians 11.21 Some Christians were showing up for church drunk. <laughs> Gluttony had become such a hindrance to worship that Paul had to address it. Uh, in addition, there were many speaking in tongues and prophesying, as we mentioned earlier, at the same time. They turned the church literally into a madhouse. Uh, they followed after personalities or false teachers. The thought was that doing such a thing was spiritual. Uh, but Corinthians assumed that everyone needed to do it. So Christianity went from being uh, a revelation from God about himself, whereby sinners conformed themselves to his righteousness, to a mere philosophic, mystic, private, private, are we a private people in our culture? Private encounter with the deity. The women, the women in the Corinthians church, they took on a rebellious attitude because of their particular gifts. They were rebellious, they were immodest, they abandoned a particular habit of dress in those days that every modest woman followed. Apparently, there were many who felt that these women happened to be the most spiritual as far as these revelations from God. Uh, some women had commandeered the services and were disrupting. Well, these false teachers came into the church at Corinth over this three-and-a-half-year period when Paul left, and they had Grecianized the church. The church started out of Jerusalem with Christ, but they had taken it to Athens, and Christianity uh, no longer looked like Christ. It was a bunch of philosophers patronizing in an immoral, divisive system that had no sense of order. Everyone had their own mystic revelations, and they were condescending on the common guy. It was a mess. A great divide had arisen between Paul and the Corinthians as to what it means to be spiritual. So some folks from Chloe's house go to Ephesus, and they say to Paul, you got to do something. Now, there were four letters exchanged between Paul and the church at Corinth. Only Paul's second and fourth letters are considered to be inspired of God. The second letter is what we know as 1 Corinthians, which we're looking at right now. The first letter is referred to as his former letter. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said, uh, the first and third letters are probably not in the canon because Paul cussed them too much. <laughs> as only J. Vernon McGee can say so. Well, with uh, chapters 1 to 6, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for losing their sense of grace and elevating false teachers, following after men and not Christ, and literally Grecianizing the faith. He rebuked them for their condescending intellectual attitude on the gospel, their immorality for not taking a, chance, uh, you know, a stance on church discipline, and for cheating each other in business. 
and for not handling it in the church, but taking it to the pagan court system where the pagan would judge the Christian and thus slander the name of Christ. Well, the rest of the book consists of replies to their questions. So let's get into the book here. Uh, in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 1, we see the longest salutation of all of Paul's letter. All of Paul's letters, no commands are given. All that Paul does here is he, he talks to these errant people about the grace of God. Because that's what arrogant people need. They need the grace of God. In grace, everyone is exalted to a common stance that can't be lost. Uh, you've been sanctified in Christ, holy ones, by calling with all who in every place call upon the grace of our Lord Jesus. Uh, Christianity is an infinite God doing an infinite work in impotent, helpless, darkened people and bringing them to an unimpeachable, unchangeable state of perfection so that, hypothetically, you can't have what? You can't have divisions. And it can't be improved upon because it is in Christ. No one can be better than Christ made them because he is perfect in what he has done for us. And none can be beneath what he did because it's an act of grace. And there in verses 10 to 17, we see the ugly scar that came across the Corinthian church, that there were some Christians that felt they were better than others because of the teachers that they followed. And the reason they were better was uh, that their teachers offered them a more intellectual, a more philosophic, uh, a clever, a more sophisticated uh, and a little bit more rhetorical basis of faith. And they had brought Athens into Christianity. And so the men said, I'm of this guy, I'm of this guy, and I'm of this guy. And so you had seen this ugly scar that some guys are better than other guys in the faith. What hath Christ to do with Athens? Well, in verse 17, the reason that I made the gospel known to you in the simple historic message was, verse 17, look there, that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And he explains that. In our text this morning, we're going to look at, uh, in verse 18, look there with me. Uh, uh, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says the gospel is not some marvelous rationalistic system where I can believe in my wit, my wisdom, my eloquence, my rhetoric. The chosen of God are not saved by brilliance. They're saved by the cross. It's the cross that draws us. And it's the cross that is the power of God. Amen? The world thinks that is foolishness. It's too simple. It's too humiliating. And it's too simple. It's too supernatural. It doesn't glorify my brilliance, my righteousness, my strength. I don't like that. It puts all men on the same level. Darkened, sinful, needy. I don't like that. The world likes this system over here that exalts my brilliance, my PhDs, my righteousness. My spirituality, my mysticism, my good karma, uh, and all of that nonsense. 
What you are preaching is total idiocy. Get it out of here. Paul says to the elect, to those who are the called, those who are being saved, the idea that God has provided a perfect righteousness that I need through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross who died for my sins and rose from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and left me a way to go over whereby he can forgive me and impute to me a righteousness that his righteousness requires him to require. A righteousness that I have reneged upon. That is the most wonderful thought I have ever had, Paul says. Men divide at the cross. Uh, Simon said of our Lord when he was born that he would be appointed for the rise and fall of many. He exposes men. Some love it, some hate it. So Paul says to the elect of God, this is the shepherd's voice or the dog whistle that only God's people hear. The cross, an instrument of death, becoming an instrument of life. Uh, let me show you this here, put this in perspective. Uh, the commentator said this, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb dropped on over Hiroshima? Do you think somebody, if they wore those to school, might get sent home? Think? Fence? What would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of the massed graves at Auschwitz? The same sort of shocking horror was associated with the cross and crucifixion in the first century. Hmm. Verse 19, uh, we'll keep looking here. Uh, and here's why we're not going to change. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, what single philosopher do you study as the end all of all rational thought? What, what philosopher do you study whose philosophic reasonings brought a moral and intellectual answer for everything to elevate man, uh, bring morality to a society, establish justice, uh, and, and answer the dilemma of the uh, origin of the universe? Uh, the mannishness of man and who man is, redemption. There isn't one. Why not? Because they all fail. One man will devise a philosophic system that won't work or correlate to reality, so the next guy comes along and puts in his two cents and so on. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside, Paul says. You're exchanging a crown for rubbish. Interestingly, that word clever in the Greek means to run together, to meet or come together. It's a word used for clever people who devise intellectual systems trying to run it all together, like, you know, Plato's theory of forms. You know, that they have an answer for everything. Um, read along with me here. Uh, in first century Corinth, wisdom was not understood to be practical skill in living under the fear of the Lord, as it frequently is in Proverbs. Nor was it perceived to be some combination of intuition, insight, and people smarts, as it frequently is today in the West. Rather, wisdom was a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. 
The wise man then was someone who adopted and defended one of the many competing public worldviews. Those who were wise in this sense might have been Epicureans or Stoics or Sophists or Platonists, but they had this in common. They claimed to be able to make sense out of life and death and the universe. Well, God says the cleverness of the clever, he will set aside, meaning they will come up bankrupt. God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, if you'll notice that word, uh, that verse is an Old Testament quotation from the book of Isaiah. Whenever Israel was facing the judgment of the coming oppression of the Assyrians, Israel's temptation was not to pray and to turn to God, but to look to the Egyptians. They looked to the world for their salvation, and God said, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and those guys who want to turn to the world. The fact is, the Egyptians fell to the Assyrians. Uh, They destroyed them. Their hope was bankrupt. When Paul takes that Old Testament idea, he brings it into the New Testament, not about armies, but here about belief systems. Why do we preach Christ and him crucified not to preach cleverness or wisdom of speech? Well, it's because God says what man tries always comes up bankrupt. It's not going to work, just like in Egypt. Well, look with me here in verse 20. Uh, it's not just for the world. It's for, uh, it's for everybody, for Jew and Gentile alike. Where's the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's the Gentile. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is smack-talking right here, boasting in Christ. Incidentally, uh, this, this verse is the Old Testament paraphrase. As I just said, in the book of Isaiah, God mocks the Assyrians. Someday God's going to destroy them in their evil, lifting up their voice against God. Uh, whenever the Messiah of God rules upon the earth, Isaiah said this, uh, Your eyes will see the king in his beauty They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Uh, Isaiah was speaking of the Assyrians. God's going to judge you someday. The Assyrians would come to battle and they would count the towers and they would uh, destroy the enemy. They would count and weigh out the gold and they would uh, count out the pillage is what they would do. And God said, where did he go? Where did he go? He was so great. Sarcasm. What happened to him? Paul paraphrases this text and says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the great debater of the age? All of these smart guys that the world looks to, they come and they go. Uh, I heard that there's an old adage, many of you may have heard it, that you never want to wed yourself to the spirit of the age because you'll be a widow in one generation. (laughs) That's because God brings every ideology to naught. Uh, Where do they go? Uh, Philosophy has replaced it, and today philosophy has become bankrupt in our culture, in existentialism where everybody just invents their own system of truth, what they want it to be based upon their own existence. So don't judge me anymore. Uh, uh, what you want to do is, is your deal. And what I do is my deal. All truth is relative. 
And that has produced the bankrupt system of American virtue that we have today. The cleverness of the clever, he will bring to nothing. He will destroy it. Where do they go? You tell me, where's Frederick Nietzsche? Where is he? Some graffiti in the 60s said, God is dead, Nietzsche. And cleverly, someone underneath, somebody put, Nietzsche's dead, God. So, philosophers come, philosophers go. Uh, the father of nihilism came to naught. Um, Paul said, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgence. We are not to amalgamate Christ to this golden calf. Finite humans will not find infinite truth systems. You know, philosophy looks really appealing for the immediate generation until the next one comes along and speculates, sees the inconsistencies, and it, you know, inevitably falls apart. Well, in verse 21a, uh, the reason they collapsed is that God has, this is on the back of your notes if you want to write this in, uh, the, the reason they collapse is that God has ordained that he will save a certain way. A man can't save himself. In verse 21a, through the wisdom of God, he has made his wise decree. He decrees three things. All right, number one, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. In and of himself, in the rejection of the eternal and his embracing of his own finiteness, Man has not, nor ever will, come to know God. Finite human beings will not find infinite truth systems, and thus an infinite standard of morality will not come from a creature with a birthday. Uh, the world will not find the truth. God says here, literally, I decree that. Uh, number two, verse 21b God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God saves through the foolishness of the cross. What the world calls stupidity, God has decreed as truth. I will give my son the word of truth made flesh to dwell among you. I will punish him for sin and I will raise him from the dead. And by faith in him, you will be born anew. I give, you, I give you truth, and it will hold up. God will not save through worldly wisdom, but through the foolishness of the cross. And the third thing here is, in verse 21, that the world is going to think that the gospel is stupidity. It will be foolish. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, uh, you, you can turn there if you want, uh, Second uh, Kings 5, verse 12, uh, right around there. It's the story of Naaman. Naaman was a leper, and he was told to wash in the Jordan River and identify himself with the people of God, uh, the Jew, and of their one true God. And if you remember, Naaman was to take off his clothing and let the people see his uh, leprous sores. He was to make a statement uh, by going to the Jordan that the gods of Assyria cannot save. And that made Naaman mad. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Naaman Samuel, why don't you just wave your hand over me and just say, be healed? No, you force me to humble myself, to trust you, and to act in faith. 
Uh, Naaman had to go how many times to the Jordan River? Seven times. That way it's not a work. To go in once and come out clean, that's a work. To go in seven times and come out dirty, you have to keep trusting in perfect faith. You go in once, you come out, you still got scabs, and everybody's laughing at you. You go in a second time, come out, dry off, and you still got scabs. People are saying you are crazy. And the third time you come out, and now what they're going to do is they're going to put you in a straitjacket because you're nuts. You must trust the foolishness of God. And after the seventh time, Naaman goes down into that water. He comes up, and his flesh is like the flesh of a baby. He is born anew. The foolishness of God saves. So, Naaman, you may scorn the prophet of God, his people, and his word, but you will die a leper because those rivers will fail you until you trust the God of Israel. Thus, Paul says, God makes a decree, human pride is not going to work, but my way will hold up. My way will work. Uh, in verse 22, uh, Paul says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. It is foolish because it's human pride. Jews ask for signs, desiring them. Greeks want visible proof and reasoning. We search for wisdom. We will not trust a divine message. I will trust me. You show it to me. Uh, let me search and let me figure out the system. I will not trust what I can't see. Uh, the study of secular history is the study of Western man refusing to believe the gospel and questing continually for something that he cannot conceive. Uh, in verses 23 and 24, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is a stumbling block. To say uh, to need Christ is to say you aren't good enough on your own to stand before God. And that does not sit well with the self-righteous. Paul says we preach Christ because it is the brilliance of God. And it is the might of God. Amen? Amen. But to the loss, the notion of a virgin-born God-man Savior who willingly laid down his life by way of an instrument used to kill criminals by the state is the most ignorant, asinine statement they have ever heard. Get this service over so we can go eat. Let's forget this idiot. Verse 25. We'll conclude here with this verse. Paul says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is why we preach Christ who is wisdom and power to his elect. God's truth will do what man's will fail at every time. The foolishness of God, the gospel, is wiser than men. 
and the weakness of God, the offense of the cross is stronger. They may have their systems, but their systems are empty cisterns that won't hold water. The gospel is wisdom and power. Amen? Um, August 7th, our extended family, uh, we lost a dear member, uh, Dr. Larry Waters. We lost him to a stroke. He was a missionary to the Philippines for nearly three decades. Uh, my father-in-law served alongside him for 27 years, beginning in 1973. My wife heard the gospel message by way of his preaching, responded in faith, was baptized by him in 1988. He officiated our wedding in Dallas, Texas. We said our vows in both countries. He faithfully preached the foolishness of the cross as a pastor, as a missionary, an author, a husband, a father of two, a grandfather of five, a Christian friend, and a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. His presence will be greatly missed, uh, but the gospel will live on in the lives of the many that he has impacted around the world. He was a good and faithful servant who finished remarkably well. Well, one day, like Dr. Waters, uh, each of us will make this final leap of faith. If you're a believer, you're going to be judged at the Bema. Your seat for your service, what you did or what you didn't do as a Christian. So you better start running, lest you be on a moped, all right, okay? Uh, are you running? How are you going to finish if you're a believer here? Uh, like Dr. Waters, we will close our eyes and we will take our last breath. Uh, if you're here and you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, you may wonder if that great paradox is true. Is there life through death? Can we overcome the impossible and cheat death? Well, what will you be clinging to? Will you be clinging and going to the grave with the wisdom of man or the foolishness of the cross? We have our elders here. Can I get our elders to stand? Elders? Or if you've been an elder, stand. All right? Anybody? If you have questions this morning about your salvation, feel free to come to one of these men. All right? And they can share with you uh, the wondrousness of the gospel if you have questions. You guys can be seated here. So, won't you this morning take up your cross and follow him? Won't you place your faith and trust in the great I am? The great I am, Yahweh. I am who I am. You can't know me unless I disclose myself, which he has done through Christ. The one who has revealed himself to us through his only begotten son, that we might be declared righteous through faith in him. Pray with me here. 
Father, we thank you so much uh, for this text and for this word of truth. Uh, we pray uh, that as we go forth, uh, that the cross would not be made void. We pray your strength that somehow you might impart to us divine strength and that you might be seen through us as we engage a volatile culture. We ask this for the sake of Christ.
challenged our hearts and our minds. Thank you, group, for your leading us in music. And thank you, Daryl. You know, I had to go a whole semester taking 1 Corinthians to learn all that. And you, you did it all in one sermon. Don't ask Daryl a question if you're not ready to get a, a, a full answer. He, he's thorough. Um, there are a lot of gospels being preached out there today. Many of them are talking about Christ and the cross. But then they say, but that's not enough. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to go through a whole system of sacraments or ordinances or whatever. And when we do that, we're doing more than just adding to the gospel. We're, we're telling the world that Christ is foolishness because he said it is finished. He said that his death was once for all and that no one has to do anything except believe. The gospel is the gospel of believing, not behaving. And so I hope that today you have solidified in your mind that the gospel you embrace is the gospel of grace. That was the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. As we leave today, just a, as we leave today, just a quick uh, reminder the men have a Tuesday morning Bible study at 7.30, and Steve Bartlett is going to be leading that. And he's talking about the customs of the ancient times, the customs of the Bible times. And uh, it, it's a great time to, to get in uh, because it helps add color to your understanding of the Bible times. It helps you understand why they did what they do uh, because of understanding the customs of that day and so uh, you're free to come 7:30, and we meet right here at the church uh, supper clubs we're trying to resurrect our supper club ministry and there's still time for you to sign up 
in the lobby there, and we'll be notifying you of your club, and then you all begin to plan uh, how you want to uh, do it. But uh, we, we encourage you, if you want fellowship, if you want to get to know people, supper clubs is a great way, another great way to do it because uh, you get to spend time and eat a meal together and uh, whatever else they choose to do. Talk about me. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. Talk about Thad, really, not me. But anyway, we encourage you to do that. Uh, Tuesday, the Joy Club is going to Top of the River that's a great catfish restaurant. It's it's an evening thing. We leave at three, yeah, and the bus is full. But uh, you can still come. We're going to have maybe a couple of cars that'll be going, and so uh, bus and then whatever else we have to take. Uh, but we always enjoy it. They have great, great food. And it's a great time to fellowship. So it's not too late to sign up for that as well. Let's uh, close together. Uh, one more time, putting our hearts together as we talk to the Lord. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, it's been a good day, Lord. We thank you for the chance we've had to, to worship you and, uh, and then to, to open our eyes more deeply into your word and to understand uh, just who these Corinthian people were and the things that Paul were challenged with but he was faithful, and he saw people come to Christ out of all this mess that was going on. And that ought to encourage us, Lord, because we live in a world that's a mess. And we need to be faithful witnesses of the gospel, the true gospel, and just faithfully sow the seed and then uh, wait on your uh, harvest. And we know, Father, that... Uh, we have great opportunity to share Christ every day. May we take advantage of those times, and may we see new faces become believers in Christ and join us here in fellowship and in service together. Dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.